Welcome back to Understanding VC. I'm your host Rahul. Today my guest is Dave Richards. Dave is a co-founder and managing partner at Capria Ventures, a venture fund and network investing in tech startups of the global south. Since founding Capria, Dave has made 60 plus investments in early and growth stage tech startups across India, Southeast Asia, Latin America and Africa. Previously, Dave led Unitis Group, a leading early venture capitalist and capital investor in microfinance in the global south. Now let's talk to him. Hi Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here, Rahul. Cool. So, where did you grow up, Dave? So, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada. Vancouver is a pretty diverse city. It's even more so today than when even when I grew up. And I really, you know, I, I grew up in the era, and I'll talk. I can tell more of my story here. But the when, when I was younger, there really weren't computers that we had access to. But I was actually fortunate to be grew up in an area where where personal computers became something that that I could engage with even as a as a young young adult. And so were you always interested in computers from I really got interested in computers in high school because at that point we had a a mini computer at our high school. I was very fortunate to have that and then we also had some Apple Apple and Apple 2 computers. So I basically got my first exposure and I got hooked on computers when I was in high school. Now on the side, you know, I wasn't actually that wasn't my focus at, at high school. I was really into sports at high school. I played competitive tennis and badminton and basketball and a few other sports. But I really became nice. a bit of a geek. I was a geek in in school and I ended up hanging out with a bunch of other geeks who were just learning learning to get involved with computers at that point. Yeah. I think people who are similar in this also are into video games. Are you also interested in I was a little bit although I was actually more interested in I mean I was programming video games I was actually building video games but I was also interested in just being able to solve problems with with code and that really led into my my college even though in college I wasn't specializing in computers I was actually specializing in finance and accounting but I ended up spending more of my time in the computer lab than anywhere else because i really just got hooked on the power of what you could do with with computers and and how you could build things that didn't exist before and and all that good stuff yeah so but if you're into, if you are interested in computers then why did you go and join finance well i didn't know that really and i think that was sort of the thing to do back then was my father yeah. was a chartered accountant which is you know a, a specialist in, in in accounting and finance and it just seemed like that was a good business degree to have and when i i got kind of the bug when i was in college i started doing computer programming getting paid for it in summer jobs working for some early stage computer companies at that stage and i really got hooked on that and even though i got all these offers when i graduated college to go work for the big four accounting firms because they just really wanted someone with computer skills I just didn't find that interesting. I found much more interesting to be involved in computers. Yeah. And so how did you end up VC then? And I also noticed that you spent a considerable time in India. I'm from India, Kerala, India. Yeah. So out of college as I mentioned, I I got a job as working initially as programming but then I quickly moved because of my business skills. They wanted me to work on product management and and marketing. So I pivoted to that and then as I was growing up in Vancouver I got the opportunity to I got recruited to um an early stage company in the San Francisco Bay area that was really where things were happening so I moved down to the Bay area 
And for about 15 plus years, I worked in tech companies, including Symantec and Sybase. And then I moved up to Seattle to work for an early company called Real Networks. I really had the, the formative part of my career was in building and scaling up companies and did a couple of startups and really figuring out how to scale those globally. It was only later that I, I really started getting the bug to look beyond working on the operating side. And I, you know, I had acquired companies. I'd done a lot of business in India because we had some of our development and, and support being done in India for the global companies I was working with. And I really decided and got the bug to, to start looking at, at India more closely. And that, that's really what led me into my first investing in India, which was around the area of microfinance. I actually initially volunteered and then, be, then ultimately ended up running a group that was one of the first private investors into this, this up-and-coming area called microfinance. At that point, it was mostly known as microcredit. It had started in Bangladesh, and it was starting to show how it could really scale. And we helped really bring that to India and a few, and a few other places across the global south, including Southeast Asia and Latin America and Africa. And that was really where I got my first exposure to working with early stage startups and you know, investing in, in really interesting entrepreneurs who were, you know, inventing or creating new 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 kinds of businesses from from scratch so even with your current fund capital ventures the focus is outside of north america and europe now why why do this a lot of innovation happens in california and you know the venture is all about outside returns right so why focus on the developing market yeah, well, I, I got the opportunity to be involved in, in the ground floor of in India and a few other places. And I really saw that the model that, that I had benefited from, which was venture capital and the companies that I was a part of and scaling them up, it was really starting to take, to take root and take, starting to gain momentum in the markets. And I, I just saw this as a new opportunity. And I had the privilege of being able to be connected to lots of people and particularly in India. And so when I decided to kind of get out of my entrepreneurial and operating capacities, I, I saw the opportunity to really, to really start backing entrepreneurs uh, in these markets. And I just saw it as an underserved market opportunity beyond the, the West, where in the North America, in Silicon Valley, Seattle, other places, you know, there's lots of different investors, lots of competition for deals. Whereas in a place like India, there was still huge numbers of entrepreneurs that were really exciting and doing things, huge markets, et cetera. And yet there was much less capital. So there was an opportunity to really, I, I thought, build something. Yeah, less competition, right? Not many people believing in the market at that point, I guess. Yeah, well, it wasn't just competition, it was opportunity too, right? I saw that the, the, the technology was starting to get, get, you know, the similar kinds of technologies were becoming available. The skill sets were becoming available in um, places like India. Now it's really expanded beyond that into a bunch of other countries. But it was really starting. The ecosystem is really what what's required to to move forward tech start. Yeah, and your fund right now is both a VC fund and also kind of a fund of a fund. So why do that? Why be both? Yeah. So our journey is we started as an early stage investor in India. That's our first two funds. We're doing early stage sort of pre-seed, seed, and yeah. sometimes pre-series A deals, tech deals in India. And we were starting to get 
a lot of entrepreneurs, because the internet is global, they saw that we had capital, we were backing interesting entrepreneurs in ed tech and fintech and mobility and a bunch of other areas. And so we get started getting approached by people that were based in Jakarta, people were based in Lagos, people were based in Sao Paulo and a bunch of other places across the global south saying, hey, we're building businesses in the categories you're investing in. Will you invest with us? <clears throat> And we said, well, actually, you know, our funds, funds right now we raised are just for India. So, no, we, we really can't do that. But we started exploring and thinking about, okay, how could we take the learnings that we had and, and these opportunities and connections uh, that we're starting to see, we saw in India that are starting to now happen in not just in Bangalore, but in Jakarta and Ho Chi Minh City and even places like Nairobi or Mexico City and we said, hey, what would be the best approach for scaling up how we could invest in companies across these markets? And we realized, you know, setting up and operating our own venture firm sort of branches in these places was going to take a lot of time and be really challenging. And so we decided that the approach we take is that in these other markets, that we would go and find the best early stage venture funds. So those guys who were doing the seed deals or even the pre-seed deals into companies. And we would partner with them, put a small investment into their funds. So to build up a, a you know, aligned relationship so that we then could invest in the best companies that they, they were finding on the ground. And we get the benefit not only of, of them identifying those companies and, and being deeply involved in those companies, but they would also be able to help us identify the ones that made the most sense. And it would also be around to su help support those along, along with us. So as a result of that, we, over the last four or so years, have made investments, small investments, strategic partnerships with 17 funds across the, the global south and across the major hubs of tech in these markets. And we kind of have this unique approach where we have the access to the data of their portfolio companies. So they now have something like 350 companies that we have an indirect economic interest in through the funds. And then yeah. we get really great quality or qualification information, qual information about the founders, their execution over a period of time and, you know, what, what's, what's strong or what the weaknesses are. And then we get access to the introductions to those companies where we can then get to know them and to see if it's a good fit for, for us to also invest in some of those companies. Uh, but your mandate is still also early stage, right? So uh, how, how does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, our, our mandate is relatively stable, although with the, we have really separate funds. So we have one, the fund for India do the early stage investing. So we'll invest as early as, as seed stage, maybe pre-seed in a few cases or pre-series A, whereas with Capria funds, we're typically investing at the A or the A-plus stage. Okay, okay. That's why what I was wondering, because you have, you have also invested in Genesis, which is a venture debt fund. Right? That makes a lot of sense, because those guys, it's their business to know everyone else. Right, exactly. So they're very super connected in the ecosystem, work with all the, the venture firms yeah. and yeah, and so that gives us a, an interesting insights into a lot of things going on in Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. So also, you know, when it comes to building a relationship like like this, right? How, how do you actually nurture these relationships? So I, I've, I've uh, you know, I was listening to an interview by Mark Anderson before, and he talks about you know the challenges of expanding to maybe Southeast Asia. One challenge is that you identify somebody if he's really good. He go and start his own fund. <laughs> so, you, 
it, yeah. it will not be under the brand of Andrews and Hopkins. So that was one right there. Said. So uh, yeah, how, how do you nurture relationships with these emerging fund managers? Yeah, well, I think that, that's one of the reasons we decided rather than to kind of open up our own Capria or whatever brand offices in these places where you know we were doing the investing on our own that we would partner. So in Southeast Asia, we've announced partnerships with AC Ventures based out of Indonesia. And we've also partnered with Ascend Vietnam Ventures out of Ho Chi Minh City. And as you mentioned, Genesis out of Singapore. And we'll, we're, we may strategically look at, at adding one or two more over time. And the idea there is that they're, that's what they wake up in the morning and, and do. They, they're super connected in their region. They know, you know, all the players, they, they're looking at all the deals. And so they become really an extension of our firm. And then we work really closely with them and support them. We don't compete with them. We really partner with them. And many, and they're all on their own journeys of building world-class firms. And so they're not just raising capital, they're building best practices. So we help share with them and, and support them in, in building best practices. And then we, not only do we support them directly, but we we involve the, the 17 firms that we've partnered with in a collaborative network so they can benefit and, and grow and, and get support from each other. And I think that's actually a pretty interesting differentiator because most of them are, you know, they're pretty much on the same path. They're all trying to build, you know, leadership firms in, in their particular region. They're not competitive. So they're willing to share information with each other, connections, et cetera. And we particularly look for firms that want to do that. They want to be collaborative. Uh, they see that, you know, sharing what they know with, with others is, is actually, uh, they get much more back in return, frankly, for, for, for doing that. So we're looking for people who, who value collaboration. And then we really um, support them. Yeah. Other than, you know, people who value collaboration and also people who are super connected, what are the other, you know, kind of values that you look for when picking partners? Yeah, so I think th there's quite a few, <laughs> actually. We're really looking for teams that we believe will flourish together over the long term. One of the biggest risks with, as you mentioned earlier, with venture firms is people split and go and start their own new thing or go off and do things. So venture is, is really a, a long-term business, meaning you've got to be able to keep your firm and your key principles and, and key people together over a long period of time to be successful at investing. So we're looking people that really have, we believe, the, the, the staying power to, to work together. They're complementary. They've got you know, the right skills that they're bringing together. I think we're also looking for commitment that they have to really building a firm, a venture firm. One, one of the things that we've seen a lot of venture, we've looked at over a thousand venture firms across Global South, as we were kind of picking the 17 that we've currently partnered with. And, you know, there's a lot of variation in, in how they're thinking about doing things. I would say a lot of them are not really building a firm. They're building a, a deal shop, really, right? They're, they're basically just slinging deals. They're not really thinking about how to build a sustainable and, and institutionalized firm over time. So we're looking for firms that really do want to do that and founders of, of these firms that really want to be doing that. And they're demonstrating that by the investments they're making, the priorities they're, they're, they're setting, and they're you know, really looking to develop their teams uh, to a, a level of global best practices. Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree with you. I think the number of institutions, like VCs who could turn into institutions, that's very less. And then people are trying to build that is also very less, right? Personally, 
Yes. So I, I was reading through your website and I saw this way of bringing state of art venture capital innovation combined with global practices of impact and ESG management. So what is the innovation that you guys bring? Yeah. So I think part of it is we really bring, I, I think, a, a good sense of and, and a good understanding now. We've been a firm ourselves for 10 years. What, what some of the best practices are. We've made lots of mistakes and we've seen lots of mistakes being made. So I think we're, we're, we're continuing to learn and I think we've got a, a pretty good idea of that. And, and we really, we do try to, uh, for the funds that we're supporting, we will try to help them, you know, bring the best practices there. But I, but I think what we're, we're also really focused on is how we're, how we're differentiated beyond, you know, helping firms develop best practices. And I think one of the core focuses that we have uh, at, for the companies we're investing in and, and supporting is h- how do we do and how do we do- deliver value to to those those entrepreneurs that are on these very challenging you know innovation journeys that they're on and scaling journeys that they're on and so one of the things that we've we think that we can help bring to the table is it's interesting we we interviewed a lot of founders and you know we've asked them hey what what things could we be helpful in we don't want to get in your way we want to be helpful we don't want to do things you don't care about or not helpful so one of the things that they said to us is hey you know i have a lot of decisions to make and and frankly being an entrepreneur is a really lonely journey so if you could help me connect to and get support from other founders who are really my peers who have been ahead on the journey or on the same journey that I'm on, which is, you know, figuring out things and dealing with the latest crisis, the latest challenge, because that happens in startups all the time, right? They they always have challenges, things that that come out out of the blue, they're not expecting, or, you know, we get these macro challenges that come with funding or, you know, or investors sentiment changing and stuff. How, How can I, how can I get some support? So I think we've, been able to at least start to give support by connecting founders and really facilitating founders getting support from founders. So really a peer support model. I mean, we try to help as well as we can, but we, we found that that's actually one of the most valuable things that are things that they value the most. Yeah. I mean, that's something that that's an initiative that a lot of funds try to do, right? So increasingly, I've been thinking that, you know, this, uh, especially Large VC funds, they have the services model, you know, they have the support system for all sorts of verticals to help founders. And <laughs> increasingly, I get, I have a feeling that, you know, all this is a waste of time. Uh, all you have to do is make sure that um, you kind of teach the founding team how to fish rather than give them fish, kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Or like at least get them on a path where, you know, they're on a track to quickly learn things yeah. that's required. Yeah, I think it's generally right. I think what, what happens is the earlier stage you go, the smaller the teams are, right? So I think the earlier stage you go, there's, you know, they don't have a senior person that specializes in, you know, in, in a, you know, even in like, even in sales or even in marketing. So, or, or finance. So there is some sort of guidance that can be provided at that particular, that early stage where, or they're trying to hire the person to do that. How, how do they, you know, how do they, how do they get the right support to make sure they, they hire the right person? But generally, once they start hiring people like that, the you know, head of these different areas, then it's, it's more about giving them support in, you know, how they might be able to connect with like-minded people or people with a similar specialization in other areas. 
But I, I agree with you. There's a lot of attempts at, at collaboration or, you know, kind of bringing founders together. But I, I think if you ask most entrepreneurs, most of them, like I think you're saying, they, they, they probably don't get that much value from that because I don't think it's, it's really the core, um, the, the core focus of the, the value add from the venture firms. So again, I, I'm not saying we've got it all figured out, but I think we're, we are trying to figure out a model which can scale up and also give people access beyond just their region, which we obviously can do within the region as well. But I think the, the value that we can bring and is, I'll give you some examples. So we have, we have similar kinds of companies or similar areas of investment in India and in Africa and, and we are also in Latin America. And, and these are, we have a company in the logistics space and they've, been able to, we've been able to connect them and it's really helped them understand and, and be able to talk at a very high level, you know, a very deep level, I should say, you know, on, on how to, you know, how things are evolving and, you know, how the, in this case, the mobility logistics space is evolving in their markets and to be able to, you know, help them make decisions based on someone else who's seen, seen things before and, you know, it isn't competitive. So they're willing to like share more deeply, like, Hey, this worked and this didn't work you know, conversations. So I think we're, we're being able to, we're starting to see those conversations happen. A more recent one that is interesting is we've had a really interesting conversation and we've created almost, we created a cohort of founders who are trying to really figure out this whole question of, you know, how do I, how do I deal with this runway question that investors are coming to ask me? They want me to have more runway. What do I do? And there's all these trade-offs that you have in doing that. There's all sorts of, you know, potential landmines that you can run into and so, you know, you got an entrepreneur saying, hey, you know, someone's recommended to me that rather than lay off 20% of people, I should reduce the salary of everyone by 20% across the board. And what do you think? And, and so there's actually really interesting conversations about, you know, what are the implications of that? You know, how's that going to work? Or how have other people yeah. tried that? How does that work? So getting really hands-on, rather than just yeah. theoretical ideas from the investors, it's getting it from a peer who's gone through that and experienced that and, and is, you know, trying to, trying to work through sort of, you know, in their particular circumstance, what can happen and trying, trying to not make mistakes or, or at least make as good of a decision as they can. Yeah. So I've had another VC on the podcast who also mentioned that, you know, when, when they have a bunch of startups who are fundraising, then they create a cohort based kind of sessions where you know they all engage in a conversation and learn from each other. I think that such an approach is more valuable than just VCs you know advising directly yeah. to a fund. The other thing that we've had good good feedback on is we've helped put together a cohort training program for soft skill building for leaders in tech firms. And it's it's something you can do over a number of weeks. Uh, it's facilitated, but it's cohort-based, meaning you're really learning from your peers. And we call it, so far, we've called it the Emerging Leaders Program. And what it is, is it's not for the most senior managers, but it's for the up-and-coming managers or, or leaders in your organization who, you know, really need to learn skills about how they can grow themselves uh, to be contributors, to become leaders in that organization. And we've actually been oversubscribed to this program such that we haven't been able to accommodate everyone in these cohorts. We've had to create multiple cohorts, et cetera, on this. And we're seeing that this is actually something that cuts across sectors as well, because the leadership attributes that you are in across, in this case, regions as well, 
the, the leadership qualities that you're really trying to build and, and, and this, this process helps people, you know, identify, you know, their own weaknesses, their own biases that they have that, that kind of hold them back and being an effective leader and being an effective communicator and things like that. So these are, we're going to continue. We kind of go through the MVP process in this as well, where we test out these ideas based on the demand. We try to find solutions that might be, be helpful for, for founders and their teams. Yeah. So when it comes to challenges facing the founder or founding teams across the global south, right? Do you see any commonalities? And if yes, what are those? And how is it different from you know the founders and the founding teams of the global north, mostly North America? Sure. Europe? Sure. So I think I would say that if you're trying to compare, let's just compare across region, but also you said to the global north. I would say that. In many cases, the challenges are more similar than they are different. And let me give you some examples. So hiring and reten- retaining talent. One of the interesting challenges that a lot of Global South founders have is they actually compete with local Global North-based em- employers. <laughs> so you've got, you know, I'll just give you an example. You've got in Nairobi, you've got a startup that is hiring and, you know, growing really fast. And they're competing with Microsoft and Google, who are also hiring people in their in their local market and trying to poach their people. So I would say that, you know, talent, I think it's going to, it's getting relieved a little bit now with some of the Global North companies, the big, big tech having layoffs, but that's been a, a really big issue is, is, is being able to re- recruit and retain talent. I would say that Raising money is obviously a common is a common challenge. Every entrepreneur generally has a challenge, but it's definitely harder in the global south uh, and in different markets of the global south because there is just less capital and less less risk taking than there is in the global north. Yeah. I would say another area is is that's kind of similar. It's worse in the global south. It's harder in the global south. Is Hiring service providers, you're really competent service providers, all the way from lawyers and accountants and, you know, HR specialists, marketing specialists, or things like that, where, you know, you're outsourcing or using a third party vendor. Often those are just not, either they don't exist or they're not really, there's not a lot of good options for startups. They're really designed for, you know, bigger companies rather than startups. Yeah, for sure. You know, the lawyers in India called founders, promoters. I, 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 They don't even speak the language. <laughs> yeah, but you need you need competent, you need good counsel. We've seen, you know, one of the the challenges is you get bad counsel. So you get like a bad, a lawyer who doesn't really understand. Or another example is you get an auditor that doesn't understand your business, and you just spend huge amounts of time and money, you know, getting an audit done that doesn't, you know, that that you're wasting your time because. They want you to do, you know, discounted cash flow evaluation. You're going, well, hey, that just doesn't really work for private companies very well. So you have to use these other methods. And so we, we've seen that happen again and again. And so you can end up wasting a lot of time and not get the value. Same for, for on lawyers. Like, you know, when you're trying to structure deal terms with investors or with, you know, your, your, your customers, having good counsel who can help you design something forward looking and really think about what the really big issues are versus just sort of check the boxes. That's super valuable. And so you know, having the right counsel who can, can give you good counsel in that um, and, and you know, is, is experience or working with startups or, you know, the kinds of businesses and 
and, and investors you're working with can save you a lot of time and money. Yeah, and on top of all of this, you know, these guys are also really expensive, right? You know? they, they definitely can be. And I we, we've seen that, you know, going with some of these global firms and things like that can be can be really challenging. So, but I think what, what we're do, do seeing, it's good, the good news is this is getting better. And we're yeah, seeing, for, for instance, sure. people that used to work in big firms spinning out and specializing in supporting startups because they see that as a growth opportunity and they really are able to redesign their their pricing and their packaging you know of their services and 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 really their expertise for startups so if you can find those people that have sort of the 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 breadth of background so they have you know they can actually give you a counsel but also the the orientation towards uh, working with startups yeah and so when it comes to mistakes by the founding team right so what are some of the most common mistakes that you've come Sure. Well, first, I'll say that being a founder is, is a really hard job. And there there's so many decisions that you have to make that you've never made before that it's just it's inevitable you're going to make mistakes. So I have a lot of empathy for founders. And I think, you know, one of the best things that you can do as a founder is get advisors or, or people that have been in the journey before you who you can bounce things off of so that you can, you can help make good, help make, make fewer mistakes. But I would say that, you know, some of the things, and these are not probably anything radically new, but the things that we've, we've seen and with, with startups, one of them is, I would say, being afraid or unwilling to hire the best talent. And this is really hard because, you know, you're, you know, the adage goes, you know, you want to hire people who are smarter than you who are better than you, especially in the area that they're going to be focusing on. But a lot of entrepreneurs are a little bit scared of that or they don't know quite how to do that. And I think they underhire for key roles. And that ultimately means that they've got it in the future. They're going to end up having to replace that person. That's just really, really painful. I would say another area that is and it's expensive as well. Yeah, of course, it's expensive from time and for the bit more than that. And the cost is the business. So I say another thing is we've seen entrepreneurs sometimes take too long to to really stop doing something or kill something off that's not working and to pivot. And again, I, I empathize here. This is a really hard one. It, it, it's, it, it, there's a lot of judgment involved in figuring out when something's really not working, or you just you know you should keep working on it harder because it's going to eventually work. So, but I, I think that sometimes I've seen entrepreneurs just hold on to something and not pivot soon enough. And I think in general, if you look look out there, the, the entrepreneurs who are able to pivot more quickly, you know, end up being able to get through and get more accomplished over time. And so that, that's sort of the ability to, to be more objective about what's really working versus what you think should work. Another one that is, again, a very common one, that it's a hard one, but so often entrepreneurs underestimate the time it will take and the effort it will take to raise capital. Yeah. And you know, it is, it is hard. And, and you know, you just even getting your story told really well so that you can, and by the way, that telling your story well is something that takes some quite a bit of iteration. Even the best entrepreneurs who are storytellers generally have multiple, you know, generations of their, their messaging 
in order to get to you know the right messaging that helps them raise money. And that just takes time, and 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 it, it's frustrating because you'd rather be doing other things, but but it is an investment. And you know, as the CEO in particular, if you, you know, leading this effort, this is one of the most valuable things you can do next to also hiring, you know, the, and managing the right team of people is is raising money for your company. I would say another example of a mistake is that I've seen sometimes entrepreneurs who are fundraising on the fundraising, they go and, and immediately go and want to talk to 30, 30 investors or some lar- larger number of investors. And rather than sort of thinking about reaching out to their investors in tiers, meaning that, that maybe they could list 30 investors, but you probably you shouldn't be inv- reaching out to them all you know, at the same time. It'd be much better to think about how to tier that process. And so, again, I, I think I understand, like, why people do that. Say, oh, gosh, I got to go raise money. I might as well just get it out there to everyone and see what who bites. But generally, that doesn't work well. And it's better. Actually, this comes back to sort of your refining your messaging that it works much better to, like, an example, like, take your first draft of messaging and go, well, first, hopefully go to your existing investors, get their feedback to see if it makes sense. But maybe when you go to new investors, you you go to some friendlies people who you say hey I you know I'm I'm trying to tell my story better so you, you're really upfront with them you know on that you're iterating and you'll you'll get feedback and then you can improve your your story before maybe you even go to the the most your highest priority investors yeah so I've had a different investor tell me to do the exact opposite <laughs> like approach a small number of investors refine your story. But then when you really want to you know, get it done quickly and especially with all your the investors that you would rather have on your cap table, do it all at once yeah. because then you generate interest, you become the talk of the town, investors talk among yeah. each other. So there's a value of doing that as well. Yeah, well, I, I, again, I'm not saying don't do do everything completely sequential, like one, one at a time. But I, I guess I am saying get your message right with some friendlies first. Yeah. And then also the other thing would be, you know, a lot of investors are not in a posi- different position to lead deals. So they'd rather be, you know, have someone else lead. So that's an important qualification thing up front is, is distinguishing between an investor who might lead a deal and, and who won't. And one of the reasons people don't lead deals or won't invest in your company also is because of, they have another portfolio company that's in competition. So being able to do those, those kind of research that you can then hone in on the right people. But yeah, I mean, I think getting a, getting a little bit of competition going. Although I would say that I think the, the general advice to entrepreneurs is, you know, it, it's not just about like getting competition so you can get a little bit higher valuation. I think you want to figure out which of the investors you really want to have involved in our and and what what roles you want to have them you know in in your in your you know in your company because these are long-term relationships and i know that people talk a lot about that and go oh yeah but i just need money and it's like well you do but you (laughs) when you when you get money you're you're really said someone said recently they said the average length of a marriage is less than the length of an investor being invested in your company, at least in the, yeah. the, in the U.S., I think. So, so I think, you know, to, you want to be able to get a little bit of competition because, you know, you, you want to get this thing to closure. And that sometimes helps on the timing. But I think you still want to have the right, the right partner and there are the right combination of investors, too, because it doesn't just necessarily mean you want one investor. Sometimes you're going to try to get an interesting group. Yeah. 
And as you know, I saw this tweet from you, which says that the number one common mistake that CEOs makes when they receive an acquisition interest is to stop <laughs> executing slash fundraising. So do you yeah. see this? So unfortunately, we've seen it a few times, and I completely understand, you know, I've empathized with founders on this. So this isn't sort of a, you know, I told you so, but but I think what happens is, remember, like, when you get a term sheet or start discussions with a company to acquire you, and even when you get the term sheet, that that's an intention, but we've seen many, many times how those intentions fall away, those deals don't close. And so... What you've got to continue to do is operate your business as if that doesn't exist because that doesn't going to happen. Because if you rely on that and you, for instance, you know, don't raise some capital or you don't, I don't know, do some business deal or whatever it is that keeps your business going, we've seen companies get into real trouble when they say, oops, this deal fell through and I got three months of money of, you know, of, you know, cash left. And that just creates, yeah. you know, a massive crisis. So I, again, I think it's a little bit hard to do because you are trying to, you know, focus on getting that transaction done. But you you need a plan B, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I've heard you also mention that you think that the spray and pray approach is not a sustainable investment strategy. But you know, there are index funds in public sure. markets, and also you know the, the accelerators like Y Combinator, which has an index yeah. approach. So that. Well, that's right. So I'm curious to know why do you say it's not sustainable? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that was too strong of a statement. I think it was more from, there are people out there that, that, as you point out, believe in that and, you know, have created some success there. Here's what I would say. I, if you're as a fund to a fund manager, I don't think it creates credibility with LPs to do have a, a spray and pray. I think that LPs kind of go, huh, why should I just bother putting my money into you? I'd rather put my money into, there's a high preference by LPs to, to fund managers who have strategies uh, that are a bit more concentrated and focused on conviction rather than just, you know, spreading lots of, lots of capital around. So I, I think a number of the, the, the firms that have tried this brand price still struggle to get institutional capital in many cases because of that. So I think that's one. And, you know, our approach, and I, and I think the approach of most venture investors is around this uh, strategy to have conviction and then support the companies. And it's, it's tough to support a large number of companies in, a, in an effective way. So in, 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 in a, in, even if some of them need it, you just, you just don't have the resources typically to do that. Yeah, but you know, there is no clear proof that you know having a strategy works better than not having a strategy, right? And also, people having different strategies have all returned good funds. Like for example, the Founders Fund, they believe even not supporting founders, but then you have a different sure. uh, fund, like Anderson Horowitz, who has like you know five hundred member team <laughs> supporting sure. founder. Sure. Uh, is there any clear proof that having a strategy is better than you know doing an index? Well, approach? I guess. I guess the question, maybe I'll turn this around a little bit, which is if you're an entrepreneur, do you want money from a spray and pray fund or do you want money from a company or from a fund that is actually going to help support you when you need it in some in an interesting way? Yeah. So I think from an entrepreneur's perspective, spray and pray money is just not that, not that interesting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And one last question, you know, why global south? Sure. Well, 
To us, the Global South represents the future of where the growth is, where the opportunity is. So if you just look at the demographics, if you look at the, the, the GDP growth, the rising middle class numbers in the Global South are what's going to drive the, you know, so the future economic, economic growth. And so, you know, we define the Global South kind of like the, the United Nations does. I think there's, there's 77 countries and these are mostly south of the equator, not, not all, but, you know, in the kind of general south. And these are the companies with the de- demographics of a rising middle class. So a large number of people who are moving into middle class and, 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 and that haven't been in middle, their economies are going to grow faster. They are going to be demanding, you know, in many cases, leapfrog services. So in the same way that, you know, most people in, in the global south never had a landline phone, their first phone was a mobile phone, right? And, yeah. you know, the same thing for banking. They're, they're probably never going to have, you know, a, a bank account like and banking services like people who were in the upper classes or, or in the west had. They're going to go to digital money and digital banking and, and you know, have a whole variety of uh, services. You know, they they... they Never had a PC. They went right to a mobile phone and now they're going to go to, you know, whatever the next thing is with, you know, more of a, a, a audio or, or language interface rather than even a visual interface, right? With AI and things like that coming. So we see that there's just huge opportunity and the, the investors continue to lag seeing these opportunities relatively. So more capital continues to you know, on absolute basis going to the global north, but the amount of capital going to the global south is growing faster. And the number of entrepreneurs is growing faster. And the, you know, what we really focus on the global south is entrepreneurs building businesses that address uh, local and regional first. So they're addressing a, a business opportunity that's local and regional that's scaled and that they will, that over time maybe scale into other regions, but it isn't just that they're, you know, building a product for, let's say, the U.S. market. They're in a company in, in Jakarta is building a product initially for, for maybe people in Jakarta or Java and then eventually rest of Indonesia and then probably next into other parts of Southeast Asia and maybe in India and things like that. That's really they're solving problems. They're building businesses that really have opportunity to scale across the global south. And we just don't see another investor taking this approach and seeing, you know, this this opportunity across global south. And, you know, do you have the conviction that a global south can be as wealthy as the global north? So I, I think it depends if you're talking about like per G, you know, per person GDP is going to take quite okay. a while. Yeah, I yeah, no, I think, I mean, as you can see, what's happened in China, which has, you know, been the most recent step up in, in per capita GDP, it's still got a, you know, considerable way to go to catch up with the West, but, you know, its overall economy is now huge, rivaling the U.S. economy, and, and it's continued to grow its per capita. So I think there, there is opportunity for countries to follow in the footsteps of, you know, pri- previously what Korea did, um, Taiwan and, you know, Singapore, of course. And, and now China, uh, that there is similar opportunities for many countries in the global south. Now, I put a big asterisk, it, it, you know, just because, you know, tech is improving isn't the only factor in, in this GDP and, you know, this, 
this economic development happening and, and improving. There's other, obviously, things like government policies, government, you know, and, and, and the right macro environment things being being in place, and governments investing in public goods that are going to support that. So I think there's still a you know high dependence on the realization of these benefits from from governments and you know and obviously not having negative externalities like wars and and you know conflicts and you know f- disease and, and things like that which we've seen even recently has, has had a big impact yeah so this has been great Dave thank you so much for taking the time again to do this sure great thanks for appreciate uh, having me on